Smartcast. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Many people say that music is a universal language. If that's the case, I would like to use music as a platform to talk about health. My name is Dr. Moshe Lewis, and I'm a full-time practicing physician who loves music and the way it affects our brains, our bodies, and our well-being. We'll be discussing topics that affect all of us, from mental health to body image, cancer screening to stroke. Our health is truly our greatest asset. Hopefully, these discussions will improve the health of our community. Welcome to Daily Dose with Dr. Moshe. I am delighted to and ecstatic, honored to be joined by Mayor Andrew Young, Ambassador, Congressman, thank you for having us in your office. This place is beautiful. Well, thank you. Uh, just taking a little bit of time and looking around the history that's here, I wanted to try to roll back the clock and just talk a little bit about how you even became interested in the ministry. Well, I didn't become interested in the ministry. Okay. I, I sort of, well, the short story is that I, I graduated from Howard uh, knowing that I didn't, I, I had a piece of paper and didn't know anything. Okay. Okay. <laughs> My daddy wanted me to be a dentist, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I knew I didn't want to be a dentist. Okay. Uh, and and that yet I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I went up, coming back from Howard to New Orleans, we stopped in North Carolina, and because it was in those days, this was 1951. Um, there were no places you could, st- no hotels would take you in. And so we stopped at a, a school, a church-related school, Lincoln Academy in Kings Mountain, North Carolina, and to spend a couple of days changing. And I, and I just ran to the top of a mountain. I mean, I was running. I was on track team at Howard. And right. I was, I mean, I, I, I I didn't know anything about anything, and I knew it. Right. See, okay. And I I was figuring what what is my life all about? Mm-hmm. And running to the top of that mountain and running too fast down the hill to get to the mountain, then deciding I'm gonna make it to the top without stopping. Okay. I I was literally I almost blacked out when I got to the top. But I made it to the top when when I when I kind of got my breath and 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply came to and looked around, the world just looked different. Mm. And what it said to me was, everything I see has a purpose. And whoever made this, the stars, the clouds, the trees, the cornfield, the cows, there's a purpose for everybody. Whoever made it couldn't have made everything and everybody with a purpose but me. So there must be a purpose for me. And I decided there was something I was put on this earth to do that nobody else could do. And I didn't know what it was and I didn't care. And I didn't want to know. I just said, I'm going to do the best I can do one day at a time. And wherever it leads me, I'll follow. And that's, I mean, I, I... I, I came home and my church had a new pastor. Okay. Um, just graduated from Yale Divinity School, and he was—he was about, I guess he was about six or seven years older than me. But he was going to a church conference out in East Texas, West Texas, and he said, "Look, I'm from the North, and I, I'm scared. That I don't like driving around the South by myself. Right. You." Will you, you know your way around, will you ride with me? So I figured I'd go to Texas with him and my roommate was from San Antonio. I figured I'd drop him off at the conference and I'd go on to San Antonio, right. party with my roommate. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Only when we got there, we hadn't seen anybody black since we left Houston. Wow. <laughs> and we were way up in the panhandle of Texas mm-hmm. and there were nothing ever white folks. And he said, you're not gonna leave me here alone, are you? <laughs> so I ended up staying, and it was the first time I'd met white folks mm-hmm. who were serious about their faith. And they all, they all had a way of coming up to you and saying, you know, if my parents knew I was here wow. with Negroes, they would probably disown me and kick me out. I said, well, what are you, what are you here for? Why'd you come? They said, because I think that that's what Jesus would have me do. Mm. I'd never met any white folks that were serious about Jesus, Mm -hmm. at least not serious enough to cross their parents and overcome the race business. And that program uh, was sponsored by the National Council of Churches. And it was an interdenominational conference and they were looking for volunteers uh, who would spend the, the next semester working with young people in churches, helping them to find themselves. Well, I figured I'm trying to find myself. I can, okay. But it, was, it was more the burden of the race mm-hmm. that there were no other black folk there. And if I did not volunteer, it would not be integrated. Right. So, I'm, you know, 
that's what I'd put myself into. If there's something I can do that nobody else can do, there's nobody black that could do that, and you that wanted, to. wanted to do that, so what the hell. Yeah. <laughs> I, I volunteered to spend the next semester working with them, because right. there was nobody else black around. Right, right. <laughs> and so uh, they sent me to Connecticut, okay. and they sent me to, a, to live on the campus of Hartford Theological Seminary. And my work was mostly in the afternoon and evening. And I said to them, look, I walked in the dean's office and said, I'm working with the church. It's a volunteer position, but I really don't know enough about the Bible. And I wonder if it'd be all right for me to sit in on a couple of classes. And his answer was, if you can sit in on three, I can give you a scholarship. Okay. So. And he said, there's a program that very few people look into. It's called the Rockefeller Brothers Fund mm. for the Negro Ministry. Right. And he said, we have the money here, but we just don't have anybody interested in the ministry. I said, well, I don't know that I'm interested in the ministry, <laughs> but I liked it. Mm -hmm. I was a biology major and minor in chemistry, and I, I love science. Right. And um, But... I didn't see myself working in an office, right. a dental office, medical office, law office. Right. I just wasn't an office person. Sure. And so, and I was fascinated by the study of life, which is what I saw of the ministry. And uh, it was right after the Second World War and a number of theologians were struggling with how to save the world from itself. And um, I was fascinated. I, it was also a place where they let me make my own courses. Okay. I, w I went in one day and I had a, I had a friend from Germany, um, who, uh, one from Japan, one from England, one from North Carolina who was white Southern Baptist and me. And so I said to them, I said, you know, we ought to study something together. And they said, that'd be a great idea. And I said, we could get a worldview right here in one classroom. So I went to the professor of philosophy and he said, that sounds like a good idea. Let me see if I can get it cleared. He not only got it cleared, but then the German anthropology professor, who was a brilliant left-wing anthropologist, uh, said, I'd like to work with that class too. And I have a PhD student from South Africa in anthropology, and we need him in there. And so, we ended up with three professors and six students, and we'd study anything we wanted to study. Right. We'd just start talking about the world. Mm -hmm. And wherever we'd end up, each of the three professors would say, well, you know, I think you might be interested in reading such and such a thing by Paul Tillich. Mm -hmm. Or oh, you might be interested in this. And they'd give you some things to look up and read not so much books, but periodicals. Right. 
They tell you where the articles were. And the great thing about this universe, this college, I mean seminary, was the library was built on periodicals. Mm -hmm. And the, the librarian said, look, everybody's going to write a book. But before they write the book, they're going to write an article that says really all that needs to be said. <laughs> right. Well, the rest he said, and you can read the article in 10 pages, <laughs> exactly. say, or you can wait and get the book. <laughs> It'll be years. 400 pages, <laughs> and you'll never get through it. So if you really want to learn, right. read periodicals. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that was exactly what I needed. <laughs> right. Primary See? sources. Progressing from there to this concept of nonviolent protest. Well, that's the first that? place. I, that's the first place I heard of nonviolence. Bayard Rustin was one of the chapel speakers, mm -hmm. and I'll never forget him. Uh, tall, handsome, um, brilliant. Spoke with a kind of English accent, and um, the the one phrase he said was. Repentance need not be multilateral. I said, what the hell is that? <laughs> That's a big phrase. <laughs> and then they realized that, that you don't need to wait for your brother to repent mm -hmm. before you repent. See? And that one of the things about nonviolence was that you, you're not accusing or blaming somebody else. You're trying to make yourself more humble, more honest, uh, more open. Uh, and that makes room for your brother. That leads to understanding rather than judgment and accusations. And um, two of the, my New Testament professor and my Old Testament professor were Quakers. Mm -hmm. So they believed in, they were part of the nonviolent church back uh, history yeah. and um, so I was thrown into an environment where we were trying to figure out how to get along in the world without people killing each other. Sure. That sounds somewhat yeah. similar to today. And then how did you meet Martin Luther King? How did that evolve? Well I came back from uh, little church in Thomasville, Georgia, mm -hmm. for the summer, just to run a recreation program. Right. And um, the Alphas at uh, Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity at Talladega invited him to come to a religious speak at a Religious Emphasis Week program. And they invited me too. And I said, you know, he was already on the front of Time magazine and everything. Mm -hmm. And I said they figured he might show up, so they needed somebody to fall back on. <laughs> right, and, but he wouldn't show but up. We <laughs> but we both showed up. In fact, that picture right there okay. is the picture uh, of the three of us in 1957 at, a, at Talladega College. And I was studying the same thing in seminary, many of the same books that he had written his doctoral thesis on. Mm -hmm. And so we were we almost in agreement. Uh, he was further ahead on nonviolence than I was. Uh, but I'd heard enough to be interested 
And I knew that violence and bloodshed never worked for me. <laughs> I mean, um, it was always easier. Well, I grew up in New Orleans. Okay. And I grew up in a funny neighborhood with an Irish grocery store on one corner, an Italian bar on another. Uh, the Nazi party headquarters was 50 yards from my house. And they were Heil and Hitler. So I, at four years old, my daddy explained to me what uh, white supremacy is what he called it. He said, these Nazis are white supremacists. And he said, you know that uh, God made of one blood all the nations of the earth. You learned that in Sunday school. Right. And he said, they don't want to believe that. They want to believe that some people are better than others. He said, but that's a sickness. And he said, you don't get upset with sick people, and you don't let them get you upset, or, or they'll give you their sickness. <laughs> See? He said, that, that kind of ignorance and sickness is contagious. So you don't want to you, you get too pulled into that. But then he took me to see Jesse Owens in the 1936, not to the Olympics, but he took me to the movies. Right. And Jesse Owens ran the 100 meters and won it, uh, making him the world's fastest human. Right. And instead of giving him his medal, Hitler walked out uh, as an insult. And my father said, but see, Jesse didn't pay any attention to that. That was Hitler's problem. Right. Jesse's problem was to go ahead and win three more gold medals. Right. See? And he said, you don't ever let sick people get you off your course, mm -hmm. see? And his, his mantra was uh, all the time, don't get mad, get smart. And he said, he was five feet four. Mm -hmm. And he said, you're not gonna be big enough to beat up every, anybody. <laughs> right. And he said, you can probably outrun a lot of people, but you won't feel good running from a fight. He said, so your only hope is to stay calm and stay cool and use your mind. And he said, you can think your way through almost any problem uh, if you don't get upset and emotional about it. And so, and he used to box with me and, uh, you know, tap me on the face. And he, he said, you have to know how to fight. Uh, and defend yourself. To defend yourself. He said, but uh, you don't get mad. You don't get angry. And, and if I'd start swinging wide at him, he'd slap me upside <laughs> my head. And he'd say, see, you lose your temper and you lose your head. Right. And so I started getting those kind of lessons from four years old. And, uh, and it, it works to this day. And so when you use your mind and don't get emotional uh, about things, I've learned later that it's the Spirit of God that leads you through. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was true with Martin Luther King in, uh, in Selma. So speaking about fighting and, and taking on a, a disease, um, but in this case a, a very tangible one by comparison, Corona comes along, COVID-19, and 
what has been your perspective? What have you noticed about that here in Atlanta, here in Georgia, in terms of how it affects? Uh, well, well, let me go back because when I gave up on dentistry and medicine, I didn't really give up on the ideas. I gave up on the practice. But um, we had been working with Senegal um, on tropical diseases because I met a physician who was raised by his grandfather as a traditional healer. And then he went to medical school in Senegal and in France. And he was in the process of merging the ancient knowledge of his ancestors who had to cope with these viruses. These viruses are not new. And they've been around the world a long time. In fact, we act like the Chinese created it, but before, long before this, he was curing AIDS in six weeks. And <laughs> I went to his clinic and it was a combination of Western medicine and faith healers. And so I was fascinated with that. He didn't like to talk about it. He said, these are the secrets. These are the traditions that were passed on to me by my grandfather. And we don't want to commercialize them. And if we give any information out. Well, when he came over to, um, when he came over with President Obama with the Ebola crisis, uh, he came with the, with the president of Senegal. Our foundation sort of adopted them. And we actually did a movie on strong medicine. Okay. Um, I don't know whether we have a copy here now or not, but um, it, uh, it's in that background that I approach Corona. Because Corona is part of the same family as, as influenza, right. see, and hepatitis, evidently. And I, I didn't know all of that, but the fact that the drops that we sent to Fort Detrick killed all of it in a Petri dish. But then we tried to get a grant from NIH to study it in animals and humans. And they're not interested in that. Yeah. And my problem here, and, and we've almost overcome that part here, that this is the first time that science has not been just determined by its commercial value. And so your recommendation would be that, it, considering the impact it's having on our community, people really should um, have trust and confidence in getting the well, vaccine. Well, they should not only to have trust and confidence in getting the virus, they should think in terms of their health, their total health. The simplest thing you can do to stay healthy 
is drink plenty of water. Yes, I agree. You drink plenty of clean water and you walk at least a mile a day or you, you and, and, and you're halfway healthy, you see. And your body, because see, the body fights off diseases itself okay. that we don't even know about. All the time. You see, all the time. And so my daddy was a dentist and they used to send him vitamin samples. And I was, I was always three years younger than almost anybody in class. So I would take all the vitamins trying to grow, get bigger. <laughs> See, and awesome. uh, so I, I, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer in vitamins and minerals. I think that we got to be very conscious of our, our diets yes. to be healthy. I saw the other day that, that Tom Brady weighs everything he eats. I guess it, it takes that, you know, to win seven Super Bowls. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to win a Super Bowl, <laughs> but I, I would like to, well, I don't want to die for nothing. Right. See? If it could be avoided through If it can be avoided, yeah. And Basic living, the things you're mentioning are relatively straightforward. Yeah. Fruits, vegetables, vitamins, some maybe basic supplements. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's it. And, and, and again, drinking water and exercise. Right, and the water. See? Yes. Now, um, I was a swimmer also in college. There's, there's certain basic things you can do that can keep you healthy. For someone who would say that when they were at Howard, they weren't sure what they were going to do and finished school and still weren't sure what they were going to do, the things that you have done, um, not only going into the ministry ultimately, but then becoming an ambassador, well, being a congressman. No, but I, I didn't plan anything. Mm -hmm. And honest to God, I didn't know the day before I, I ran for Congress, I had not thought of running for Congress. You know, it was because I was trying to get Vernon Jordan, bless his soul, and Julian Bond to run for Congress, and I wanted to run the campaigns. Because right. I figured I could run three campaigns, and nobody wanted to run yeah. at that time. So I, Harry Belafonte called up his wife and said, you know, see if we can get Lena Horne and Sidney together. We need to put on a benefit. And he said, yeah, try uh, Alan King. And said, so we can have a nice, he said, she said, well, what are we doing this for? And he said, and is running for Congress. And I said, no, I'm not running. I said, I'm trying to get some other. He said, nobody wants to run. And you realize it's important. And the last meeting I had with Martin Luther King, it was with Harry before we went to, before he went to Memphis. That Sunday night we were in New York and it was Harry and John Conyers and Dick Hatcher, and they were saying, we got to take the energy of the movement and move it into politics. Mm -hmm. And he said, that's the last message you got from Martin Luther King. Right. He said, you can't say you can't run. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, what the hell? And then Jimmy Carter, so he decided he was going to run for president. And I didn't think he had a snowball's chance in hell. And you weren't the only one. See? but. He worked hard, and people started attacking him, and I was in the Congress. And um, 
it just wasn't true what they were saying. See, they were trying to paint him with a, a Southern Dixiecrat brush. But he, um, when he got to be governor, he did exactly the opposite of what these folk are trying to do now. He deputized every high school principal as a voter registrar so that nobody could graduate from high school in Georgia without being a registered voter. See? And he did lots of little things like that that didn't make any fuss, but that really empowered us. And he told me, I said, I really think you need somebody in the Congress. He said, no, if we're going to do something with human rights, um, I need you at the UN. And I said, well, Barbara Jordan would be a much better UN ambassador than me. And he said, she would in every way but one. <laughs> and I said, what's that? He said, she didn't march with Martin Luther King, and you did. And so in order to give our foreign policies on human rights some credibility, I, I need your association with Martin Luther King. So that's how I got there. Right. I come back to Georgia, and Maynard Jackson has just done a phenomenal job for eight years as mayor, but he had two-term limit. That's it. And I thought I was through with politics because I had three kids in school, and I didn't have any money. Mm -hmm. I mean, one was in law school, one was in engineering school, one had just been accepted to Duke. And I said, a mayor's salary is $50,000 a year. I, I, I can't afford to be mayor. And there was a nice little old lady that came and sh shook a cane in my face and said, look here, boy. Say, you came here and you wasn't nothing. <laughs> and we done made something out of you and we done sent you all over the world as ambassador. And he said, and now we need you. And you ain't got time for us. So I had no choice but to run for mayor. And it was perfect. I mean, everything that I had ever done fit into being mayor of the city. And we, uh, we brought 1,100 new companies in from all over the world. And it was $70 billion worth of foreign direct investment. And a million jobs were created. And we built up the airport to the world's busiest airport. And 40% of everything we spent at the airport was spent with minorities, right. see? And we turned it over to Maynard Jackson who could come back again. Uh, so I, I, I did, you know, I did what I had to do and it all seemed to work out. Right, and put Atlanta on the map, to say the least. Well, and then we brought the Olympics here. I know. And we had the biggest Olympics ever, ever. Yes. to this In day. In the US, that's true. So it's, it's been a really good run, to say the but, uh, there's still a lot to do. Right. We won't be finished. And Dr. King used to say that, uh, he said, you got to be clinically insane to think that a rabble-rousing bunch of brothers like us could change this nation. And he said, we probably won't make it to 40. Mm -hmm. But if we make it to 40, we got to make it to 100 because it's going to take that long, say, to have a real 
kind of impact we need. Well, he didn't make it to 40, but I was able to get by. And we, we, have, we still have a, a wonderful struggle, but we probably have more influence in this administration and, and good people um, in key places that we can really have an impact the next few years on the nation and the world. And a lot of it's going to have to be with health. Yes. Because clearly. this virus is not political. And the same God that created the clouds and the trees created a virus. Right. <laughs> and part of the challenge of humanity is just like we learned to live with the elephants and the lions, we got to learn to live with this virus. Right, right. <laughs> and if not this one, and, and the viruses keep changing. Exactly. There'll be more. So there, there will be, um, this is not the last one. And that's why I guess we, we still have to keep our masks, even though I've had both of my shots. Sure. Right. And I had both of my shots, and the only thing I had was a little itch in my show, on my arm. Sure. And there was, there was no no problem whatsoever. I, I didn't even know the lady had stuck me. Sure, yes, the same at the first shot. I didn't think we'd done it yet. Sure, yes, the same at the first shot. I didn't think we'd done it yet. I'm not going to make uh, you get up, and we're going to take a quick tour of your pictures in a moment, but um, thank you so much. I mean, I think those are so many words to live by, so many pearls, and you've heard it um, here yourself. Drinking more water, walking a mile every day. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric House Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Back podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Electric acid.